Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking to author Nancy Thayer about her new book, Girls of Summer. Welcome to the show, Nancy. Thank you, Christina. I wonder if we could begin by having you tell us a bit about yourself. Oh, good. Okay. Um, I'm living on Nantucket, where I've lived for 35 years. Um, I came here to visit a friend, and I met a man 37 years ago, Charlie Walters, and he reads as much as I do. He used to write for Rolling Stone, and then he had a record shop, and then it was a CD shop, and why am I talking about Charlie? Uh, I should talk about myself. Um, I had my first novel published in 1980 which is before many of you even were born. And it was called Stepping, and it was about being a stepmother. And since then, I have published 33 novels, and they are all about families and friends, but I always include a sort of controversial or maybe uncomfortable for some people's subject that I just include in the book as if it's just sort of a normal thing. Um, I'm, I'm living here on the island uh, with my husband and our cat. We have worries about COVID-19, which I'm sure everyone has. And um We are doing a lot of self-isolating, which is not that difficult if you like to read. And if you like to write. Yes, of course, if you like to write, yes. Can you tell us about where you write? I write up in the attic, but it's not exactly a garret. Um, Our house was built in 1840. You have been here, Christina. You know our house. And I've seen where you write. That's why I want you to tell the listeners. Oh, one of the very few. <laughs> because uh, it really is a private place. It has a view of the harbor. So we put in a half-moon window so that I can sit and look out at the ferries and the boats coming and going. Um, but I have my computer turned away from the window because I need to concentrate. And I have two desks. I have a computer desk and I have a beautiful old wooden desk where I pay bills and I don't know what I do there. I pile things there. And since I've been here for 35 years, I've accumulated more books and more 
tables up here that I make books for. Um, it has, I have file cabinets, I have, I have a beautiful rug that the moths are eating, so I'm, I know, I have to get something called diatomaceous earth, because that's supposed to kill the moths without hurting Hallie, who is our cat. Um, so I love coming up here. It's, it's a beautiful private place. It's just the right size. It has, it has a window air conditioner, which I hope it's not bothering everyone listening. Um, and, and I come up here every morning. It is my, it's my inspirational spot. And I have one bookcase full of books, but I have another bookcase full of pictures of my father and my mother and my sister and my, my son and his partner, David, and my daughter. And hang on, Christina, I have pictures of my daughter and her five children. Wow. <laughs> and I have... We have a beautiful ceramic bowl that was made by somebody uh, and given to me that I keep near me because it was made by somebody who was going through a difficult time. And since we're not on audio, I, I mean on video, I can't show it to you. I keep a lot of bits and pieces of the people that I love all around me so I can, I can look at them and feel inspiration, feel happiness, feel that these people and I have gone through some difficulties and a lot of happiness. And books are really important to you, and that's how we met. We should tell the listeners how we met. Do you remember that, Nancy? I do remember that. We met in the library where you were working at the Nantucket Athenaeum. And you were working at the circ circulation desk. And for some reason, I think I might have said something about, I asked you what you did your dissertation on because you have a PhD. And I asked what your dissertation was about. And you said it was about farm women from five different, states in New England. Isn't that correct? Yes, you have a fabulous memory. And when you said that, I thought, oh, this girl belongs to me, because that is the sort of thing that I have been trying to write about, trying to, to bring about. Um, when I first published my first novel in 1980. At that time, the New York Times Book Review published uh, the views of one woman for every 12 men. And there was and always has been a sense that if you write women's fiction or beach books, uh, that, that, you're being, um, that you're somehow less worthy than if you're a man writing about politics. And 
I don't think that's true. And um, that's why when you told me what your dissertation was about, I wanted to know more. And we got together. And uh, it was wonderful when you were living on the island. And Charlie and I miss you a lot. I miss you too. I miss our literary lunches. We would meet up at Fog Island after you were done with your morning writing practice. And I don't think Fog Island is there anymore, is it? No, it's not. No, Fog Island, I can hardly... Well, it's gone. Every place is gone, really. Um, I don't know if we ever met. We did meet in the Espresso Cafe. Yes. Yeah, then it was met on May after you were gone. And now I don't know what it is. Um, everything's changed, but I suppose that shouldn't be a surprise. Um, and there are a lot of wonderful restaurants, uh, although they're not having a good time of it this summer. And change is actually a theme that threads through your book, especially when your characters who are grown, come grown children who were raised on the island, come back to the to the island and they're walking down the street and Theo's like, where's the this? Where's the that? Um, because that that is such a part of the island culture. The island stays the same and yet it constantly changes. And that's a theme that you keep exploring through your books. You're right. And I should say that the particular book that we're talking about is Girls of Summer, which is about a family of um, the mother is divorced. She's been divorced for a long time. Her name is Lisa. She is 56 years old. Uh, she has two children, Theo, who is 25 and a surfer dude. And while I'm talking to you, I'm moving things because my cat's trying to knock them off the, my desk. And Juliet, who is 27, um, and Juliet is a computer geek and tech. And Theo is a great big handsome surfer dude. And for different reasons, they come home to Nantucket for the summer. And they come home uh, to find that their mother, Lisa, who is 56, divorced, has a wonderful home, runs a shop, has friends, but suddenly she now is in love with a guy. So that's okay, but the guy is 10 years younger than she is. And the thing, one of the things of the book is older women, younger men, because it always is so natural for an older man to marry a younger woman, but seldom the other way around. Uh, except, I have to say, uh, and I think I mentioned this in the forward or in, the, in my acknowledgments of my book, I discovered that Jason Moma, or Moma, however you pronounce his name, that great big handsome movie star from various movies, um, he's married to Lisa. Bonet, who is hmm, maybe five years older than he is. Um, there are more and more couples now where uh, 
Meghan Markle is three years older than Prince Harry. Um, and I'm seven years older than Charlie. And we've been married for 35 years, so I think it's probably going to be okay. I think so. Having met Charlie, I'd say he's, he's pretty invested in you. <laughs> so that's, that's one of the things. Um, another thing of the book, which is very important to me, um, which is about our waters, our ocean, and rising waters, and climate change. And I'm a novelist, and I don't want to be writing a nonfiction book, and I don't want to be scolding anybody, um, and I don't want to cause any any arguments. But because I live on an island, I'm well aware that the water really is rising. And whenever we have floods or a nor'easter or a heavy rain, many of our streets flood. If you know where the dreamland is, Christine. Yes. We have water up to the dreamland and two feet of water, lots of water. In addition to that, because of our, our climate, and I have posted on my Facebook and Instagram sites pictures of what I write about in the book. In fact, I write about this in the book because of the existence of something called the Marine Mammal Alliance. And I don't know how long it's been since you were here, Christina, but in the past few years, we have had so many seals, harbor seals, uh, out at Great Point, that now you can't take a dog out to Great Point. You can't even go fish on the point because there are hundreds of seals there. And what they are, one of the things they're doing is, um, is being beached on the sand with plastic strangling them so that they can't breathe. And, and there are a lot of times when these animals wash up on the shore, they're alive, but they're in serious trouble. And there's a brilliant, wonderful man named Scott Leonard who heads the Marine Mammal Alliance. And he and his crew go out to Madiket or Surfside, wherever the seal is found. And they take, they cut the plastic off of the seal's head or neck or body. And it is not a sweet little interspecies moment because the seal does not understand that the people are coming to help. The seal wants to bite. He wants, he wants to be defensive. And Scott has posted pictures on the Marine Mammal Alliance page on Facebook. And I use some of those pictures on my Facebook site, and I also write about it and use him. Well, not him. I use him in my book, but I don't use his name, and I completely change the way he looks. So 
I'm writing about a family. I'm writing about romance and love and how weird it is if you're in love with a girl and her father is in love with his mother because that's that happens. But I'm trying to I'm trying to weave in the fact that the times are changing, the weather is changing, and our attitudes toward people are changing. And and it's something it's something that I include in my books, but I'm I'm trying not to lecture. So I hope I haven't just lectured. You haven't. But did you actually attend a lecture at the Athenaeum that was very inspiring for this book? Do I have that right? Was there a Sylvia Earle meeting or something? I have attended many lectures. And <laughs> <laughs> because here it is quite a problem. It is not just the, the fact that we now have great white sharks uh, who are coming over to eat seals. I mean, I think when you were here, there weren't any great whites hanging around. Um, now there's an organization called Oath Search um, who was here. They come here every summer with their boat, which they use to capture a great white and haul it aboard the special uh, table they have for the that they can raise and lower for the great white, and they tag them and they take some blood and then they let the great white go. So what they do is very dangerous, but very important because now people can look. I can look on my phone at my shark tracker and see if there's a great white in the area. And more and more, they're coming in this area. They're going over to the cave. Uh, this means something. This, to scientists, this really means something. Um, I have gone to lectures about rising waters and how Nantucket uh, is really part of the whole East Coast, how Miami is going to really be affected by rising waters. Um, so I've gone to many lectures about that. And Charlie has been on several organizations that have to do with clean water on Nantucket. Because over the years, Nantucket has become so popular with people who have huge yachts. Who knew that so many people have huge yachts? And whatever they are unloading into the water is changing the safety of our water. Um, we are losing eelgrass, which means there aren't as many scallops as there used to be. And so, yes, I've gone to a lot of lectures. Um, and as I said, I think our relationships with other people are changing just as much as as our seas are changing, as our oceans are changing. But it all happens so slowly that um, in one case, I think it's great. Um, 
And it's what I try to do in my books, which is to include... <laughs> Sorry. No. Um, that was the cat again. I... <laughs> you can't be a proper writer unless you have a cat in That's your cool. in your writing studio. It's in the manual. No. Oh, you know that. You have a dog. I would have a cat. My cat allergy is so sad, but but my dog uh, is lovely as well. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, so I the the island is more than a setting in your books. It's definitely a character as well. It's just it's so vividly portrayed. It's so visceral in all your books. The strong connection with the island and. Yes, when the five years I lived there, I watched quite a bit of Sconset literally fall into the sea. When I first moved there in 2000, there was a whole lower section of homes below the cliff. And by the time I left, not only was that whole section of homes gone, on the, but much of the cliff had fallen and all the houses on the cliff side had either been hastily moved or had been lost. And that just happened in the five years that I lived there. Um, it was, it was dramatic. And so, um, it's, it's been an ongoing thing. And as you said, for an island population, all of that is immediate. It's, it's happening all around you. Um, and it affects your, your, your daily life. It affects your relationship with the seasons. Um, and you, you have a very powerful storm that happens in the book. And I did live there through some very powerful storms, but I wasn't caught in them uh, quite the way your characters were. Can you talk about how important it was to, to bring that to life for the readers, that storm? Um, yes, the storm. Um, I think it was a nor'easter in my book. The nor'easters... Um, I'm from Kansas, so I almost feel like a fraud even saying nor'easter instead of northeaster. Um, but a nor'easter is usually the strongest storms that we get with with the highest wind. We might have wind of um, 70 miles an hour with gusts to 90. And that's very scary, but it's also very exciting. And if we have those in the winter or off season, so many of us, like Charlie and me, uh, island people like to go out on the beaches and look at the waves and get this exhilaration that the ocean is giving us. It's it's an amazing connection with a force that is always there, even though we're not aware of it, even though we don't do what we should for it. Um, the time that I feel most connected with the universe is when I'm on Surfside Beach with a storm in the winter with the waves crashing down and this energy just sweeping onto the island, this amazing, magical, unnameable energy of the ocean. I've lived here 35 years, and I've spent a lot of time 
in the middle of the island on the moors where there are walking paths and and flowers. Um, I don't swim in the ocean because I'm not that strong swimmer, but I'll, I'll certainly wade. But what I like to do is just walk along the ocean, and it makes me forget for a while all the little things that are bothering me. Um, I think the Nantucket Ocean, well, the Atlantic Ocean coming to Nantucket, and the sound, Nantucket Sound and our harbor, has an attraction that is irresistible and really is unnameable. And I have grandchildren who have come here every summer and often in off-seasons, and I can see how it, the ocean, the water, it lures them, it, 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 it enthralls them. They want to go there. They want to be in it. They want to carry little buckets of the ocean around. Um, it's just, it's an amazing place to live. And, and it's an inspirational place to live. And I suppose that's why I write about it all the time. But in, in Girls of Summer, the ocean is angry. And I've been feeling that for a while, that not just the ocean, but the world in general, the natural world, is really angry with people. And I don't actually use those words in my book, Girls of Summer, because there are a lot of people who read my books who live in the Midwest or the South. Um, a lot of a lot of people would be uncomfortable with me talking at length about something like global warming. But if I can write a book with a family and some romance, um, maybe not too much sex, because a lot of my readers get upset and write to me and say, you know, I can't ever read you again because there's too much sex, and I don't have too much sex in my books. Yeah, this is news to me. I've, I think, I don't know that I've read every single one of them, but I'm certainly well-versed in your canon, and this is this is quite shocking to me, and I'm slightly, you know, conservative on the sexy scenes myself, so I have not sent you any of those letters, even under a pseudonym, Nancy. They're not for me. Uh, I had a letter from a woman about my book, um, uh, Let It Snow, and the book was about well, shopkeepers on the on the wharves during the Christmas stroll. And at the very end of the book, a man and a woman who are interested in each other uh, go to her house. And the last sentence is, they go they go upstairs and they don't come down until morning. And Hang on just a minute. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've got a cell phone and I can't get it to stop. Anyway, um, a woman wrote me a message, an email saying, 
I read your book, and that last sentence made me know I will never read your books again because I think it's unnecessary to have sex in books. And the sentence was that they go up the stairs and they don't come down till morning. So That's the equivalent of those old movies that flashed on the fireplace. Do you know those scenes I mean where the couple would, you know, start looking romantically to each other and then they would just cut away to a scene of a crackling fireplace? Right. Yeah. Well, I think that was too much for these ladies or this lady. Um, but I, my first and major concern is always families and friends because I think, I think they're the most important thing in everyone's life. Um, I think we have to be so brave to go through life and deal with what life gives us. And we get so much wonderful, wonderful things, but we also have a lot of problems. Um, And in Girls of Summer, I'm writing about a very slight problem, but it is a change in our in our um, relationships and our our um, perception of people. So I write about a, an older woman in love with a younger man. And the lady who wrote me about that one sentence should not read Girls of Summer because <laughs> there is a scene in there. Um, and as I said, Lisa, who is 56, is in love with Mac, who's 46. And Mac has a beautiful daughter who is 25. And she and Theo, who Theo is Lisa's son, and he's 25. They're in love with each other, but but it's just kind of odd. What do you do um, when your parents, you're, in, in Mac's case, Mac is widowed um, and Lisa's divorced, and they're really in love with each other. Um, so that's sort of the skeleton of the book, which I hang the book on that on that frame. Um, what's going to happen? Uh, what's going to happen with not just with Lisa and Mac because of the age difference, but another problem which I mentioned very well. That was an important part of the book on Nantucket. We have had problems with oxycontin use with the use of of oxy. And Theo and Beth, when they are in high school, have a best friend named Atticus, who looks like Heathcliff, and um, who takes Oxycontin and takes too much of it. So, And he, he takes too much on purpose. Yes, yes. When he's a teenager. And I was wondering how much that part of the story was inspired by something that happened on Nantucket a few years ago where there were a series of teen suicides. Um, the, oxy, the oxy section of my book is not based on that. Um, 
other teen suicides a few years ago. I think it was based more on the fact, to be truthful, that um, I was aware because my sister is a nurse. She lives in Kansas City. She's a nurse, and her husband's a therapist, and they're both very, very aware of, of how people, not just teenagers, can get hooked on oxycodone and, and the problems it can cause. And um, at the same time, this was two years ago, I had an operation on my back, which was amazing and wonderful. Dr. Kwan of New England Baptist Hospital has my eternal praise because it was wonderful what he did. And he fixed you. He fixed, he fixed me. And um, I came home with a prescription for a whole lot of oxycodone. But I had heard enough from my sister that it is addictive and I'd heard from her about the problems that the patients she's seen and her husband have seen, um, that I was absolutely terrified. And I only took, I think, four oxy. I took one or two for two days, and then I went straight to Tylenol, which worked well. Um, I, I, because I was in pain, I didn't get the high or the bliss that you get if you take Oxy. Um, but I was terrified. I've always been terrified of drugs. And, and I think a doctor and a nurse would tell you that, that it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous drug. So that is also in the book. Um, because I try to keep my books each book, I'm not a historical writer. I try to keep my books contemporary. And Theo is really grappling with that on another level because he's actually prescribed that medicine for his injury. Right. And that brings back a lot of unprocessed, unhealed wounds from his friend about a decade previously committing suicide from his own oxy addiction. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, I suppose Theo was was reacting when he was... Theo is a surfer dude. Start with that. And he goes to the University of San Diego because it's so near good surfing. And I'm sure some of you out there know this. I, I know people have who've gone... I mean, people on this island, guys who have gone to the University of San Diego because it's near good surfing. And that's what Theo does. And he surfs, and this is all at the beginning of the book, he, he gets slammed into the ocean and he gets his humorous fracture. He, so Theo is in pain and, and he goes home to be with his mother and to be on Nantucket, and to be with his sister, because that's all comfort for him. Nantucket, his mother, his sister, his friends, his house, his island, and he does have the prescription for Oxy, 
but he remembers the terrible things that happened with Atticus. And Atticus's problems, um, in a way, they're like the problems my own brother had. My brother died when he was 29. Um, he was super, super bright. And this was a long time ago in Kansas. And he was so bright that this would be in the 50s, 60s. He was so bright that they skipped him from second grade to fourth grade. And he became a kind of freak because he just was so smart. And when he went to high school, they didn't know what to do with him. He um, applied for colleges and got into them without having a high school diploma because he read all the time. He was super smart. Um, he started working for a television station. He made a lot of money. He bought himself, I don't know, I'll say Alfa Romeo or some kind of car. And he started doing drugs. And um, there came a time in our lives, I was nine years older than he was, when he would call and he would say, you've really got to take a speed because it tells your heart to slow down and speed up at the same time. And I said, Billy, I'm not going to ever talk to you again until you're off drugs. And um, he had, he fell asleep while he was smoking and the house burned down. So in my past, I have always had that's probably why I had the fear of drugs. I've never written about my brother because it's deeply emotional. But that's one of the little uh, packages in my heart and my brain that is always there, that I'm always carrying when I'm writing a book. And your, your books have such a tender honesty through them. I think that's one of the hallmarks of a Nancy Thayer novel is that you, you speak to the truth of women's lives and the variety of circumstances women are going to find themselves in at different stages in their life with an honesty that has a tenderness. It's, it's bearable. Um, how do you do that, Nancy? <laughs> um, I don't know. I think I've written some books uh, where people, I didn't especially show tenderness towards some of my people because I think there are a lot of people who don't deserve tenderness. In fact, they deserve just the opposite. Um, I think part of it is that I grew up with a family that I loved, uh, a mother, father, brother, sister. Um, and I never could figure them out. I never could figure us out. Um, I married very young. I married when I was 20, 
to my psychology professor who was 36 and he'd been divorced twice and my parents wouldn't let him in the house and I was 20 so I thought this was wonderful, a scandal, it was fun, I was in Kansas um, and, and I think I have to be tender or I've learned to be tender to my own self, to that very stupid young woman. Um, I, I was a stepmother and I loved those girls uh, and I was divorced and then we had, well no, first, <laughs> my first husband and I had a son and a daughter then we divorced almost immediately after. Um, and and I, I think anyone who looks at their past, if they get to be 40, let's say, or even 30, and they look at what they thought and did when they were 20, and 25, and 30, they have to... They have to gather some tenderness and forgiveness in their hearts because we all do stupid things. And um, some of us stop being stupid, but not all of us. And Lisa does some of that looking back and taking stock because her divorce was a difficult thing. And she also had two young children, a daughter and a son. And he also turned out not to be uh, the person that she thought that he was. Um, how did how did Lisa's ability to look at her own past free her to go into her future? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I think she had gained a lot of confidence from her friends, from the support of her friends. She had started her own store, her own clothing store, which was very successful. And having a successful career, I think is um, it's really good for, for your own self uh, image, for your own consideration of yourself. So she, and she had two children by the time she met Mac. She had two children who were grown up. And as we used to say, um, they weren't dead or in jail. So she had been a good mother. And That's a, that's a fair standard. <laughs> um, but I think... I think it took her a while to gain confidence, just like it took me a while to gain confidence. Um, I think we're always working on it. And we see um, that theme again with the two younger female characters, with Beth and Juliet, that when they find romance, unlike many romance novels out there, they don't blindly leap. They actually say, well... Let's take our time a bit, and I'm working on my career right now. Um, and I love that part of the book. Um, it, can you tell us about that choice? Because I love it, but it's not the traditional, you know, romance story. I think that's part of how our culture is changing. Our specific American privilege, 
culture is changing. I think when I was young, when I was 20, at, at the, I was at the University of Wichita, and uh, I was told that I would never be able to teach literature in college um, because I was a woman. They told me that. That was Those were the words. And I didn't protest. I didn't. I accepted it. Um, and actually, I finished my bachelor's and got a master's at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. And I taught. Um, I taught freshman English and freshman literature. And I, I was a really good teacher because I was really prepared. But I was really terrified. I remember walking into my first class, and I wasn't that much older than the students who were there. Um, I remember trying not to, well, actually, I was going to say I remember trying not to shake, but I did shake. And I shook so much that my voice trembled, and I thought, oh my God, these people are just going to kill me. They're just going to think I'm, I'm hopeless. And so I stopped. This was before people said just breathe. But I stopped. I took a deep breath. And then I told a lie. I said, I'm sorry if I seem a little upset, but uh, just before I left to come to the university, uh, someone ran over my cat. And oh, isn't that terrible? It was a lie. Oh, it's a lie. It was a lie. It was a lie. Okay. And at least the cat was okay. Yeah, the cat was okay. And the students were, were oh, oh, Mrs. Thayer, we're so sorry. Oh. And after that, I had my voice in control. I, I knew they were on my side, and then I became a good teacher. But um, I won't forget that moment. Um, and there were a lot of times like that. In my life, and I'm not a natural extrovert. Some people just are. They've got the energy, they've got the personality, and I like people. You know that, Christina. But I do. You are. If I want to just interject and tell listeners, you are one of the warmest, most effervescent people. Um, so I bet most people don't know that you're an introvert. Um, because you you connect so well, especially at your signings and when you're when you're talking to people after you give a talk about your book, you come across as a as an extrovert in those moments, definitely. Well, good because I do like people and I do like meeting people, but and I love Facebook, I love Instagram, I love knowing people that I wouldn't ordinarily know, uh, and. I'm sorry. I love dogs and cats and seeing pictures of them. And I read, and I might have mentioned this in my book, that um, scientists, researchers have said, go ahead and look at pictures of cute cats because we have shown from from studies, studies have shown that looking at cute cats lowers your blood pressure. And looking at cute dogs lowers your blood pressure. So uh, that's my word of wisdom for you all. I don't know how I got to cats and dogs, 
Um, but I, I, I'm very happy alone. My husband's very happy um, alone with me. I have told him that being with him is as good as being alone because I really like writing. And I think to be a writer, you have to be kind of, kind of crazy in a special way. Um, I do enjoy, I do enjoy meeting people and talking to people who read my books, but I find it very hard to say, oh, go buy my book. Uh, I, I find, I find that difficult. And in fact, I now have a woman, I, I've hired this brilliant woman named Sarah Malia, who is my virtual assistant. I've never met her, but she puts a lot of posts up for me, and she always sends them to me, and I approve them or add or change or something. She sends out my newsletters because, for one thing, I'm usually writing a book, and, and newsletters take time to put together. Uh, but she has a natural uh, the magic with, with posts and words and and she's so wonderful and I've never met her. <laughs> that's that's amazing because the ability to do things remotely is something that um the character of Juliet brings to us. And she's the one who where you had the quotes about cats and dogs because that's her job. She works for a a platform that posts all kinds of things like that. Can you tell us more about Juliet? Juliet is, I suppose she's one of my favorite characters, but she's not in the book as much. She's very, very smart. She went to MIT. She is working in Boston uh, for this group. And in fact, um, she's a lot like my son, Josh, who works his partner um, is the biosafety expert um, director or something at Arizona State University. And Josh works for a company whose name I never remember. And we decided the other day that that he's, he's become a tech diplomat because he knows all the deep technology. Um, but he also has people that he manages, and the people he manages, one lives in Texas, one lives in Canada, one lives in Connecticut, one lives in New York, um, and he's been, wherever he goes, he takes his computer, his laptop, and he can work, and I, he's my connection to the world of the future. He's really, uh, he's really good at that sort of thing. And, and he's really happy, but he also likes to travel. And he's traveled <clears throat> lots of places. He's everywhere. And um, so, in a way, Juliet has a lot of his up characteristics. She loves her work. She would like to travel, but one of the reasons she's in Boston is... She kind of worries about her poor, lonely, old 
mother who is 56 and needs to be, feels like she needs to be nearby. Uh, and Juliet falls in love with a man who is 10 years older than she is, and she has some decisions to make, but she is very interested in her career, and as we all know, almost every day, new possibilities in what we can do with technology come around. It's, it's fascinating and exciting, um, and I'm just trying to keep up with it. Juliet is on the cutting edge. I'm sort of back, I don't know, at the uncutting edge. Um, I said to my grandson recently, I'm going to send you some DVDs about something or other. You'll really like it. And he said, uh, Nanny, there's this thing called streaming, so you don't have to send me a DVD. And I do stream all the time, but that, that wasn't in my vocabulary, and it's also not something, it's not something I can send him. He can just do it himself. So Juliet has not yet found herself, and she hasn't explored what she could do as a tech person, and she hasn't explored the world. And so falling in love is wonderful, but a little inconvenient. And the changing nature of relationships, whether it's by tech or people moving from one place to another, or them confronting the taboos of what age person you can or should fall in love with or date is a recurring theme throughout the book. And in the few minutes we have left, I want to ask you, what was your favorite part of writing Girls of Summer? Huh. My favorite part of writing Girls of Summer. I think it's it's getting to know the characters and, and what's going to happen to them because a lot of writers write a synopsis of what is going to happen in each chapter. They do an outline of it's going to start here and they're going to end up here. And I'm not capable of doing that. I have to write about three chapters before I, I have any idea of who my characters are. And my newest analogy for this is that for me, starting a new book is like opening a door just a little way and looking in. And as, as the days go by, I can open that door more and more and see more. Um, That's I, wonderful. I guess, I guess my I guess getting to know my characters was my favorite part. Um, but I also loved writing about the storm. Yes, and about the changing um, issues of the island with the climate change. Yes, and Christina, I will put my videos on Facebook. You should look at them because you've lived here. And I, I want you to see Easy Street underwater. Um, I want you to see 
uh, Washington Street underwater. It's um, it's becoming quite dramatic here. Yes. And so that's the other side of the island than what, what I was talking about with the erosion and the loss of houses and beach, which was uh, on the Sconset side. What you're talking about is really, uh, for listeners, downtown, the main, the main uh, hub part of, of the Nantucket town proper. That's correct. The main part of Nantucket uh, is, let's say it's a tic-tac-toe grid about four main streets and you could get off a ferry and walk right up to the post office, the library, a bar, a restaurant, buy clothes. You never need a car. You just walk off the ferry. You go to the grocery store. You can buy an antique. But now, um, last year, for example, the parking lot at the Steamship Authority Terminal was covered with water. Only a few inches, but that's going to change. And we've had scientists here predicting that the water is going to rise and rise, and it's going to become a problem because Nantucket Town is a historic district that has not been changed for over 180 years. Our brick buildings, our beautiful Athenaeum where you worked, with the columns, our, our, all our beautiful buildings and sidewalks and cobblestone streets, those, those are going to become more and more endangered as, as the climate changes. And for people in an island community, particularly one like Nantucket, there isn't higher ground to go to. Um, well, you could come to our house, Christine. <laughs> okay. Because we're on Orange Street, which is sort of the top of a hill. But um, on the Sconset side, there is a lot of erosion of the bluff. And out in Sconset, on this particular road, the houses tend to be owned by billionaires, not millionaires, billionaires. So they are trying to put... Uh, tubes of sand at the bottom of the bluff so that the ocean will not erode more of their bluff, but will go aside and erode the bluff next to them. And what it's doing is just causing a terrible, ugly mess because the tubes that are holding the sand are made out of hemp or something like that. They get torn open. Uh, the sand spills. They they hire people to bring sand over and dump it at the bottom of the cliff. But the sand from somewhere else doesn't have the same little bugs that that live on the ocean. So for for the little tiniest things, it's a terrible problem. I don't want to end on a, on, a, on a negative note, though, because I want to say that I've talked to my son, I've talked to a lot of people who are even younger than my son, and there, there are so many 
ways of changing things. And I think younger people especially are, are really doing the hard pushing of making changes in many, many directions. Well, I like to end on that note too. That is a positive, uh, a positive way to end. And it's definitely what, what we hear about the, especially the, the youngest generations are very, very concerned about climate change and have a lot of ideas about what we can do. Um, in the last few minutes, will you tell us what you're working on now? Yes. Um, I'm working on a book called Family Reunion. And um, it's multi-generational. Uh, it's about all sorts of, of problems and also possibilities that, that take place with especially between a grandmother and her granddaughter who are sort of aligned against the woman in between who is Eleanor's daughter and Ariana's mother. And I sort of, I've learned to do this with my grandchildren. I think anybody, there are probably no grandparents listening, but uh, I bet there are people there listening to this who have fond memories of grandparents giving them ice cream when they shouldn't have had it. So I'm, I'm playing around. I'm having fun writing family. That sounds wonderful. And I hope you'll come back and talk to us about it when you're ready. Nancy Thayer, thank you so much for being on the show today and telling us about Girls of Summer. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again. <laughs>